In this episode of 2000 Books, I chat with Martin Lindstrom, who was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Martin talks about the fundamentals of marketing, what truly influences our buying decisions. It's not about what we say, but what really happens inside our brain. Well, hello, hello my ambitious friends and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development and much much more. And I am your host Manny Vaya. Martin Lindstrom is one of the world's most respected branding and marketing gurus. He advises some of the largest companies in the world including McDonald's, Nestle, Microsoft and Walt Disney. He's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of six groundbreaking books on branding including Brand Sense, Brand Washed and Biology, the book we're talking about today. Martin, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks thanks for being here and uh, we're talking about your book Biology. Now that's spelled B U Y O L O G Y rather than B I O L G Y. even though there's a lot of there's a lot of biology like bio involved here as well because that's where we're getting into and i'm always fascinated with the names you pick for your books so somehow you have this knack for picking up some good names huh <laughs> <laughs> well i've been lucky so far but i'll tell you one thing it's not easy we can talk about that another day or a beer to to find a simple word repre- representing all your writing I mean, it's 600 pages or whatever. It's really hard. So believe me, this has not been just something I grabbed out of the air. Yeah, yeah. No, I bet uh, it takes a lot of hard work and uh, a lot of thinking about that behind the scenes. So let's get into your story. We want to understand what got you into this. Like, what led you to writing this book? But what was your business story that led up to all of this? Well, the business story is very simple. Um, you know i've done uh, a lot of research uh, over the years and i think i realized at some point in time that uh, you can't ask consumers about what they think and feel you know quite often when you ask them they may not be able to elaborate on um what a taste feels like or mm-hmm. what a smell sounds like mm-hmm. or some of those really tricky questions and so i thought why not go straight to the source and the source of course in my mind is is the brain so based on that we we began to raise money and we raised 7 million US dollars uh, over a period of 4 years and out of that i then uh, founded what what became the i guess today the largest neuroscience study at least in marketing in the world where we scanned 2000 consumers brains across some six countries uh, using both a combination of fMRI which stands for functional magnetic resonance imaging technology and something called SST um for me to not just figure out how to answer those questions that are raised for you but also to verify if the whole idea of neuromarketing actually makes sense Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh it was David Ogilvy or I'm not sure who it was who said that what people think, what they feel and what they say and what they act, they are completely different. And even though yeah. we are thinking that we're very rational creatures, we're not, right? No. There's no, a- no it, it's it's fascinating this whole topic. I mean, did you know that 85% of everything you and I do every day is irrational? <laughs> And we know that today from the study. I mean, I bet you you feel that you are slightly irrational in everything you do. But, but admit to this: uh, Do you have you tried that you are, 
you're using your remote control on your television and it's just very flat for batteries. So you press extra hard to squeeze the last battery out of the remote control. Now, if you do that, it's a very good indication about how irrational we are. And I think we are living in a world right now where we kind of fooled by the fact that everything is so rational because everything is spreadsheets and ROIs and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, very few people, if any I know, have ever created a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet, when they felt in love with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. <laughs> and, 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 and this is very much symptomatic for the reality that when you create these love affairs with brands, you just can't assume that people are rational. It's all about irrational behavior. And when we're talking irrational, we're really talking about the deeper parts of our brain, the more you know, the subconscious or even the limbic regions of the brain rather than the conscious, the prefrontal cortex area of the brain, which is the more thinking uh, part of the brain, more uh, decision-making part of the brain. We were saying that a lot of these decisions are coming from the subconscious without our true awareness of it. And we can... But that's true. And, and I think I think uh, the best way to illustrate that is, is really one of the first um, chapters I'm, I'm, I'm writing in biology where I, I tell you about the whole uh, experiment conducted with Pepsi and Coke and, and where you know, all studies so far has shown that, of course, Coke is the largest brand in beverage in the world. Uh, people love it. Yet this experiment conducted um, some many years ago, in fact, showed that when people were given the option to taste between Pepsi and Coke, and they didn't know that A was Pepsi and Coke was was B. It was the, the letter B. Then, when they were tasting this and the brains were scanned at the same time using fMRI, people had a clear preference for A, which was Pepsi. Now, when they were, you know, basically uh, when the whole brand was revealed for them, and you know, these people were lying in the scanner and had the brain scanned at the same time. What happened was that they, literally the taste preference in the, in the brain changed its mind. It, it literally first had a preference for Coke when they thought it was Coke. And then when they realized it was not anymore, then they changed the whole mind. And the, the taste preference in it was lying to the person. So the person was not even aware of it himself or herself. And this is very much the essence of our subconscious behavior that Quite often, we don't know why we do things. We just do it. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> that is that is absolutely fascinating that we're we're willing to. It's almost like we're bending the reality to try to uh, fit it to our our way of thinking in some ways. Um, absolutely, I, I guess this is the essence of brands in many ways. Because uh, I, I'll give you an example and and help me here. Imagine that I have two cars. And the cars are exactly the same. They're produced, as, they're produced the same way, uh, same materials, same cost, same quality, same design. There's zero difference. But the first car out of those two cars is produced in Turkey. And the second car is produced in Switzerland. Which one would you prefer? Mm, Swiss, Swiss precision. Yeah, right. Now, but, but think about this. They're exactly the same car. None of these two countries have ever produced cars. Yet despite the fact that I just said to you, it's exactly the same car, same quality, same price, same everything, you still say Swiss. And this is a good example about how we're deeply irrational because intuitively we're drawn towards that even though it doesn't make sense, right? Interesting, interesting. Um, okay, so, so one of the things that I was uh, fascinated by as you were uh, talking in the book was the idea that we get a dopamine hit 
just when we're about to buy something or when we buy something. It's not necessarily... Uh, and dopamine is one of the most addictive uh, compounds or one of the most addictive... Uh, is it a hormone or what, what is it? A neurotransmitter? It's a neurotransmitter. And basically, a neurotransmitter gives you a kick. So if you are addicted to gambling to coffee, to chocolate, to sex, and to any of those stimulants, including smoking, you actually have an activation going on. And that activation is called a neurotransmitter. And it really comes back to um, to when we were monkeys, uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago, where in many ways we were built in such way that we would be rewarded when we were out hunting, gathering stuff, to survive throughout the long winters. And that gathering process was basically a hardwired way for the brain to ensure that this monkey would collect things in time before the winter would hit and it would be too late. Now, if you translate that into our life today, year 2017, the gathering is really, and the hunting is really hunting for materialistic gods, goods. So that is the brands and that is the shampoos and that is the cars and all that stuff. Um, so you could say that our Olympic brain is really old-fashioned. It's never really evolved with how we as a society have evolved, but it still releases that neurotransmitter. And that's the reason why a lot of people are addicted to buying stuff. Mm. And it's also the reason why you know, we want to have a new car. Now, we, we don't buy a new car because it's, it's driving faster. We think we buy it because it drives faster. But remember, we have so many restrictions on the roads that few of us ever will you know, drive very fast for a very long period of time. We buy it because it shows a signal to the world. It shows who I am, what personality I have. And at the end of the day, to be honest, uh, to pick up girls, to pick up people. Uh, so uh, you have to remember that we are in a constant dilemma because our brain is having its own little mind and we from a rational point of view have another you know, mind and that's the conflict we have and quite often we fool ourselves. Mm. So help me understand this. In in this situation, every time we're buying something new, we're also giving up our own hard-earned money to buy that thing and a lot of the times those buying decisions are irrational but at the same time we've lost something in the process. So how come we're able to justify and feel good and get this dopamine hit while we're still losing our money, our hard-earned money. And like, is there that detached, like, are we not as emotionally attached towards the loss of money compared to as we are to the gain of something new? Well, it, it's very simple why. Uh, because there is a certain priority in our brain which is dictating what is most important. So the most important thing in your life is to avoid fear. Um, and, and fear is driving us because that's a survival mechanism. Uh, the reason why we have a nose and the reason why the nose is just in front of your mouth is because in the old days when you are picking up food or berries, the nose would sniff out if this meat would be off, if the berries would be dangerous. And, and that way we will survive. Now, fear is controlled by an area in our brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala is really the fear center. And the fear center in many ways overrides anything else. Uh, that's the reason why even though I can tell you from a rational point of view, you should not be afraid. If you've had a burglar in your house three times before and I tell you the house is absolutely safe, safe now, you would not believe me and you'll still be affected by it. It's the reason why people are afraid of flying because even though I tell you there's fewer accidents in the air than there is on the ground, it still is overruled by the amygdala. 
So we have a priority, and that priority also comes down to dopamine. And it happens to be so that dopamine has a higher priority than some of the other stuff. And that means that I'm more addicted to getting this kick because that kick makes me feel basically back in time, remember 100,000 years ago, that I have a better chance of surviving throughout the winters rather than actually I may go broke during the winter as well because I couldn't afford it. I'd rather survive than going broke. So mm. the priorities are hardwired into our brains. And that is the reason why addiction happens because it gives that uh, cycles of reinforcement all the time. So even though I know this is bad for me, it is so tempting that I continue doing it because I just can't stop it. My brain is hardwired, right? Mm. And it's somehow a result of the fact that it's emotionally charged in the moment or we are like all these decisions come as a result of some emotional charge. And one of the experiments you talk about, which is, you know, do you want to get an Amazon.com gift card, $15 gift card right now or $20 gift card later? And uh, a lot of people will take the $15 gift card right now because there is an emotional charge involved. Is that is that is that what's like... Is there a fear of losing in this case or it's more of the uh, excitement about a game? Or- well, exactly. In, in that particular case, it actually was a fear of losing. And people were literally, while they had the brain scanned, by the way, for these gift vouchers from Amazon, they literally had a firing up going on in the amygdala, so the fear center of the brain. So people were, ironically as it sounds, afraid of that Amazon would go broke. Um, because we are much more driven by short-term gain. That is the reason why the stock prices are going up and down every second. Uh, mm. that, that is the reason why uh, you are continuing eating your potato chips even though you know that's not healthy. Um, because we are very short-sighted as people because it's a survival mechanism, not for 10 years from now and for now. And I think the best way to illustrate that, and it may be is very relevant for, for the listeners of this show, that – the way you use it as an entrepreneur is to make long-term become very short-term. So a good example would be the insurance industry. The insurance industry uh, have had huge problems selling superannuations or pensions to uh, to consumers um, because uh, – I'm not sure. How old are you? I'm 38. 38. Do you have your superannuation? No. No. See, that's very interesting because you fundamentally believe that you're not getting old, right? Now, yeah. uh, so, so why should I? I'll have enough time. I have enough time. I'm invincible, right? Now, how do I make a person like you? 30 years, years of age, how do I make you save money? Well, I'll tell you how I do that. I actually project how you're going to look like 40 years from now on. And that's exactly what the insurance industry did. They actually worked with simulators. You take a photo of yourself and simulate it based on all the expertise they have of how we age as human beings and simulated how you look like if I add another 30 or 40 years to your age and showed you the photo. And once you start to see yourself when you're 30 years older, you suddenly realize, dear, I can actually get old. And in fact, I have zero investment. So I would really have a problem. You actually made something which were very long-term become incredibly short-term. And this is a very, very simple trick you have to use as an entrepreneur. If you want people to invest in long-term in things, it is to make it short-sighted instead. So make it very clear uh, as to what the short-term pain or what the short-term gain might be. That's what. Well, yes, absolutely. Um, It's also to make you feel it. Mm. It is the idea of that if I can't put myself in the shoes because I can't relate to it, then I can't understand it. So, I mean, do you have a kid? No. 
So I bet you that you would have problems understanding why some mothers seem to be incredibly rational with their kids when they're drunking around in airports or on board on a plane where little Peter is screaming for approximately six hours in a row while you're sleeping next to little Peter. No sympathy at all because you never had kids. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had kids, you would have the feeling that interesting uh, empathy would actually will make you feel that instead. And once you feel it, you would understand it. And that, that's also the reason why if you have never had children before, you don't see any ads for baby equipment. But the moment you give birth to a baby, I'm sure that both you and your wife will immediately see baby equipment everywhere. So this is how our brain works. It filters the processes and it's a survival mechanism. So the more you create an emotional engagement with a short-term gain, the mm -hmm. more I'm likely to buy the product. Emotional engagement with the short-term gain. Yeah, very yeah. crucial, very crucial when we're writing copy, when we're thinking of our advertising and marketing. Absolutely. Great. Um, now, another thing you talk about um, in the book and kind of related to this but, uh, is the power of rituals and how rituals make things stick in our systems, in our brains, in our minds. Um, talk to us about it. Why does it happen and why... Should we actually think about ritualizing some of these things or try to ritualize our the products or whatever we have so that we can make them stick? Well, rituals is, as a lot of other aspects in our lives, very irrational. If you take some of the best athletes in the country, if you just take Super Bowl and you really start to analyze the football players there, you'll notice a lot of them are executing a lot of rituals before they go into the field and during the whole match. They do that because it's very, very, very difficult to rationalize if I'm going to win or not because it's just too overwhelming. There's too many unknown factors. So for us to get a sort of a hook in reality, we execute rituals which really creates a safety net, a perceived safety net under us. This is very rational stuff, I don't need to tell you. Now, if you can take that perceived safety net and put it under a brand, that means if I drink or eat that brand or whatever I do, I feel that safety net, then suddenly you created another layer of loyalty. So let me give you an example. If you take Corona beer, Corona beer uh, have a ritual which is to squeeze the lime down the bottleneck. Now, most people believe that that ritual came from Mexico um, some many hundred years ago. And the reality is it was invented in 1984 by two bartenders in California to show how fast a ritual is able to spread around the world. Now, this is fascinating because I was in Switzerland the other day in Europe and I was walking down the main street in, in Zurich and there was this old man. He was homeless very clearly, had no money, but he obviously had enough money to just save his last buck for Corona beer. Now, this man, in fact, had also been out there, I don't know how he did it, and got hold of a lime and squeezed it down the bottleneck. <laughs> and I just find it so fascinating um, because when Corona Beer, from a rational point of view, said, well, if people really want to have lime down the bottleneck, why don't we build it into the beer so we have a lime taste? That's not the point. It is the execution of that ritual which creates a sense of belonging with that, that particular brand. So I feel it's very close to my heart. So rituals really create another format of addiction. That's the reason why some people touch wood. And that's the reason why certain people don't spend time or live on fourth floor. If you're in China, eight has a certain lucky number. It's the reason why a black cat passing over the road means bad luck 
or Friday the 13th, you have the number of people uh, and traffic accidents on Friday the 13th is going up. Because people literally think there will be more accidents, so they're driving more carefully, so there is more accidents. <laughs> it's the reason why uh, Belgian Airways, which is a European uh, airline company, which until recently had 13 dots in the logo shaping the letter B, had was grounded because consumers simply did not want to fly with an airline company uh, which had 13 dots on the back. So all of this is deeply rational, but it's also the story about if we can infuse this into the brand, you actually create another sense of loyalty. And that, that's really the, the message here. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is a very, uh, <clears throat> very profound uh, <clears throat> reality of the times that we or i guess it's always been the reality that we all ground ourselves with the rituals and anything that adds to that grounding makes that more likely makes it more likely to be part of people's rituals and hence uh, people falling through and a ritual and one of the strongest things that creates rituals in people's lives sometimes is religion right and yeah. you talk about religion and how some of the most powerful brands in this world are like religions. That's true. So one of the things we did in this uh, neuromarketing study was to scan uh, people belonging to the faith of Christianity. Now we choose Christianity because it's it's the largest religion in the world. And I wanted to find out if there's parallels between uh, people which are strong believers and brands. And as we scan people uh, which were huge fans of Hello Kitty or Harley Davidson or Apple or other brands like this, uh, and as we uh, scanned the brains of, of Christians who were very devoted, who were going to the church every week and praying and, and stuff like that, we noticed that exactly the same region in the brain was activated. And that was really the first time ever we noticed this interesting correlation. Now, this observation was later on verified by three independent uh, papers which were published on this particular topic. Basically, you know, drawing a, a very interesting picture in front of us because if you really want to create incredible, powerful brands, you actually can be inspired by the world of religion. And, and what I did subsequently from from uh, this research study was to jump on the plane and fly across the world for almost two years where I interviewed religious leaders in order to understand what are the key ingredients creating a powerful religion. And guess what? A time of the time, we actually noticed it was almost the same. In fact, there's only one religion which had a slight difference from most of the religions, but all of them had basically 10 commandments, everything from having a clear enemy, a sense of belonging, rituals, of course, as we talked about, a sensory appeal, a storytelling icons. Uh, those aspects were almost identical across all the religions. And that later on in our theory and in my work when I build brands across the world has today become the foundation for how I build brands. And, and I think a lot of people around the world seems to follow this, this, this theory. Now, this is important to have in mind because if you are a small business and you are building your own brand, you actually should go back to that checklist I've outlined in, in biology, the book. Because in many ways, if you tick a lot of these boxes, you are pretty certain that if you do it right, that in fact you will succeed. Because guess what? Some of the most powerful brands in the world all tick those boxes. I mean, think about it. Apple. Apple is all about having a clear enemy, which was Microsoft. Mm -hmm. um, it's all about... Um, 
evangelism. Think about Steve Jobs and spreading the word. It's all about icons. They have the logo. They have all those symbols was so clear. Mm -hmm. Sensory appeal, the sound, the startup sound, the tactile sensation on the, on the product. Storytelling. Steve Jobs was all about storytelling. In fact, guess what? You can tick all 10 boxes of the religious uh, framework. And, and this is, I think, a very good start if you want to create a, a truly powerful brand. Absolutely. This is this is uh, so powerful, especially in I was trying to as I was as I was reading, I was trying to literally think in my mind which of these would be would go to the top of the whole chain of like all the pillars. And time and again I felt like having a strong enemy or storytelling were the ones that I felt like they were some of the strongest things that a brand can do to create a movement in some ways around them, create a tribe around them. Uh, Absolutely, I, I think I think think about Pepsi. Um, one of the former former CEOs of Coca Cola was saying that if we did not have an enemy like Pepsi, we would never have been as big as we are because it was Pepsi and Coke, and that enemy picture would make them grow as fast. Uh, think about IMPC, I'm a Mac campaign, or later on Samsung attacking uh, Apple. Um, all those enemy pictures is helping us to define who we are. It's also the reason why, of course, in politics and particularly in the United States, there is a lot of stuff going on there. Of course, enemy pictures within politics, of course, the whole Russian aspect right now, uh, the whole uh, immigrant issues, all those topics are hardwired into our behavior that we always want to define an enemy. Now, why do we want to define an enemy? Because it makes us feel safe. Um, and safe safeness is creating what we call a sense of belonging. And sense of belonging is where we have a voice, which we feel everyone else understand, and I'm being heard. Mm. And in a society where I feel I'm losing my voice, I would always retreat back to having a very clear, defined wall around myself. Well, you can see what I'm saying right now. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, so what I'm basically trying to alert to here is that the more we're under crisis, the more we're under pressure, the more we want to define an enemy because it makes us feel comfortable. That's the reason why we see the trend in the world. It's also the reason why brands will have very strong enemies in the future. Yeah, and I, you know, as I was, as as I said, as I was reading the book, as I was thinking about it, I was literally thinking about the most recent presidential elections, Trump versus Hillary. And the thing that stood out to me was the fact that Trump was very clear, very vocal on vocalizing the enemies that are out there to get us or, you know, and creating a sense of belonging around that sense of enemies. While yeah. Hillary was more, there was no, no specific enemy to be aimed at. It was more like uh, generic in some ways. Yeah, and absolutely. You could say that uh, Hillary Clinton was politically correct. And of course, Donald Trump is politically incorrect. And, and this is, of course, an incredibly interesting topic. But if you look at it from a brand point of view, uh, it is very clear that the future of brands will be very politically incorrect. Um, not only because Donald Trump, for good or for bad, have set a stage where it's almost expected to be provocative. It's also because the media exposure is so extreme at the moment that it's very difficult to cut through that clutter of noise. And therefore, those brands who are very provocative will have a much stronger voice than those who are politically correct. And you did see that throughout the election last year, that the politically correct politicians, uh, they didn't get the airspace um, because they didn't create the headlines. Um, so I, I think as uncomfortable as it sounds, many brands now need to define who are their friends and who are their enemies and basically not be afraid of having enemies. Now, the good news is there's 7.5 billion people on planet Earth, so you have enough people to, to appeal to. 
that was not the case 20 years ago where you could not reach out to all those billions of people. You can do that partly today through the internet. And because of that, you are having a much more diverse but yet much more focused market and therefore you can afford to to offend people. Now, I'm not a big fan of offending people just for the sake of doing it, but I do find it's very interesting that if you are a brand and you have a very strong opinion, for example, like Chick-fil-A in the United States uh, or like uh, Ben & Jerry's, in the US and around the world, which have very strong political opinions, both of the brands basically going in contrast to each other, you will notice that those brands are doing well because they have strong opinions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's almost like the world wants us to stand for what we believe in, even if it's not always the right thing. But that standing allows us to create a following, create a tribe around it. Yeah, Absolutely, it does. And I think, to be honest, I think in many ways, uh, at least the Americans are sick and tired of being political correct. Um, you see that we can't offend anyone, we can't say anything, we can't express our feelings, we can't touch anyone, we can't enter people's privacies. Uh, there's so many restrictions I heard the other day, and I, I think it's kind of amusing, and I have absolutely nothing against it. I want to stress that. But in Google, when you are going through the employment process, you have to tick the box of what sex you are, and there's seven boxes you, you can tick um, because there's so many options besides being a man or a woman. Um, so it just gives you a sense of the political correctness was a part of the daily life, and some people feel threatened by that. Um, and that, of course, is infusing itself into the preferences. Um, so, of course, this is a very fascinating trend we see right now. I find it very scary at the same time, I have to say. But again, of course, from a brand point of view, it shows a direction which we have to, as marketeers, be very aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's so, so important, especially like when, when we're talking about early stage entrepreneurship. That's when the, there's a difference between a blunt knife that wants to please everyone compared to a really sharp edgy knife that will cut through what is really important and that's that's the key right that's the, the key distinct if we can have a sharp very specific voice then we can actually lower our marketing budgets in some ways because we don't have to be that wide or casting such a wide net in order to build our audience build a following absolutely absolutely and and i think it hurts it's difficult um but, you know, we exposed to an average 3,000 brand messages a day. Um, you know, we have today on the shelves in the United States more than 260 different toothpaste brands. I bet you if I asked you to recall more than five, you can't do it. There's not a lot of space in our brain. Uh, so, therefore, we need to be very sharp. Yeah. So, so Martin, this has been this has been so much fun. There's so much so much great learning for people who are listening, for the entrepreneurs who are listening. Now, let's make it uh, a little actionable for these guys, for these guys and gals who are listening. What, according to you, I, I know you've been working with some of the biggest brands in the world. You've worked with the biggest names in the world, and but when it comes to early stage entrepreneurships, early stage startups, what are some of the key things they can do to apply these principles, apply these branding principles that you have learned over the years? Well, I think this is a good question and, and I'm going to, to do something that's not very nice to you, but I'm probably going to put into the mix two books because two books are really going to create the foundation for this. So biology is, is all about the deep psychology. Another book I wrote just recently called Small Data mm-hmm. is all about how to understand consumers first. And I probably would start out there first mm-hmm. because here's the issue. Um, as everyone is obsessed with big data today, um, you will notice that there is something completely missing, and that's what I call small data. And small data is really 
really what are defined as seemingly insignificant observations we make in people's lives. Now, that may be the way I sit, it may be the way I place my shoes, but it also will indicate how I eat and how I drink, how I party, how I cook. That insight, uh, spending time in consumers' homes or in their lives and picking up that little insight about their lives can actually create a huge difference for your brand. So the first thing as an entrepreneur you have to do is to use that technique. It is literally to spend time in consumers' homes and pick up those insights. And once you do that, to turn that around. Now, another methodology I use, uh, I call that the PDA. It stands for Property Detection and Analysis. I really take that observation and I turn it upside down into an opportunity. Because consumers cannot tell you solutions. I mean, the airbag was not invented by a bright consumer saying, I want to have cushions popping out of the side of my car door, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, it was a person saying, I'm afraid of being killed and having something uh, edgy going into my heart. Uh, and then in the innovation process, that will turn it around to become an opportunity instead. So the second thing is to take those consumer insights and turn them upside down, which I talk a lot about in, in small data in the book. The third thing is then to say, what signals would you like to own and what do you want to stand for? Now, in terms of what you want to stand for, it's important to say that uh, you should stand for something very simple. And one of the methodologies I have is to say, what is the one word you want mm. to stand for? Mm. If I, for example, take um, uh, the word search, I'm sure you will say Google. If mm -hmm. I say in the car industry the word uh, safety, mm -hmm. you'll probably say Volvo. Um, they own one word. And my question to you as an entrepreneur is, what is your one word? Mm. If you could just own one word, aligning and focusing and, and making your message succinct, what is that one word? And no, it cannot be quality or international or service because those terms are already taken. It is something which stands out from the crowd, but which can help you to create a point of differentiation. So that would be the third point. And the fourth point would then be to go one step further and, and, and say, well, what do you want to own in terms of the symbolics around all this stuff? And symbolics for me is, of course, the whole idea of um, the theory I call smash your brand. So in 1915, the Coca-Cola company invented the new glass bottle, which you all know today. And the briefing from Coca-Cola to its external um, bottle manufacturer was to develop a bottle so smart that if you were to drop it on the floor and it would smash into thousands of pieces, you could still pick up one piece of glass and recognize a brand. Now, I call that simple for a smashable. A smashable could be a sound, a color, a pattern, a, a shape. Um, if you take Burberry, they have a pattern. If you take Tiffany's, they have a blue color. If I take uh, the sound, it would be the Apple startup sound, or Creole crayons would be the smell. No, what you have to do is to own Smashables. You need to own more than just your logo, uh, one, two, or three different Smashables. And once you own that, then you actually are on a very interesting track. So these are the four steps I probably would have in mind as I build my brand. Of course, there's a lot of other stuff to say. I mm -hmm. guess you can write a whole book about that. Right. In fact, many, uh, but at least that's a good start. Oh, by the way, my good friend Evan Carmichael wrote a book called The One Word. So just... And that's all there about we go. <laughs> the one word. But you have, uh, your little data came out last year, right? And uh, it, Small data came out last week, uh, last year, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, it's done very, very well. In yeah. fact, it was, it received seven, seven bestseller awards last year in the US alone. So it's done well. That's awesome. And I want to talk to you about that as well in a future uh, uh, podcast or uh, interview. But uh, Martin, this has been, this has been s such a great uh, pleasure for me learning from you uh, 
and understanding the psyche behind biology. So tell our listeners where to find you, where to learn more from you, and all the books well, that you've been writing, because our, <laughs> our listeners are all, are, they're all book lovers. Well, listen, um, I've written seven books, and if you want to learn more, go to martinlindstrom.com, M-A-R-T-I-N-L-I-N-D-S-T-R-O-M. T-R-O-M.com, where you have a ton of videos and a lot of stuff you can download. And by the way, you can also buy the books there. And if you want to learn more about all the stuff I talk about every day, because there's lots of good advice I, I give every day to all my followers around the world, go to facebook.com slash Martin Lindstrom. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Martin Lindstrom. Of course, you can also follow me at, Lin, at LinkedIn, which is Lindstrom Company. So there's a lot of different spaces, but you know, I guess the two books are Small Data and, of course, uh, Biology. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Martin. This has been a joy. This has been a privilege. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. You're welcome. Take care. So, my ambitious friends, if you are trying to build a powerful brand for your business, I highly recommend you download this quick spreadsheet we have created, which covers all the pillars of a powerful brand. Just download the spreadsheet and fill in the blanks, and you will get started on your branding journey. Now, there are three ways you can grab this spreadsheet. First, you can text the word SUMMARY, S-U-M-M-A-R-Y, to 44222, or you can head on over to 2000books.com slash SUMMARY, or you can click on the link in the short description in your podcast app right now. And if you think this episode would help one of your friends or colleagues, please share it with them on your iPhone, the podcast app. You will see a share button at the bottom left corner or the top right corner, depending on which screen you're in in the podcast app, it looks like an arrow coming out of a square box. So just hit it and share it using text, Twitter, WhatsApp, Facebook message, or anything else that works for you. I would really appreciate that. Well, until next time, my ambitious friends.